This is a tough crowd, okay? I want you to know it's tough. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, as we gather together this afternoon, we're, um, we've had a full day, uh, a day of uh, intellectual stimulation and spiritual food and also good physical food. Several, Many of us are tired, but I ask that you would keep us alert and awake as we talk about this important topic, one that you care that we know so that we would uh, learn of you and be better servants of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're talking about the problem of sin and its cure. And that's a, a topic that I've discovered. By the way, where did, uh, where did uh, Robbie go? Robbie, what time am I supposed to be done? In about an hour. <laughs> okay, that's good enough for me. Okay, all right, that sounds good. So let's begin by doing a review of what spiritual maturity is. Remember we said spiritual maturity is, are the, the spiritually mature are those who through the power of the Holy Spirit understand God's word well enough and consistently have put its truths into practice long enough that they are capable of distinguishing good from evil in practical terms and are competent in teaching others to do the same. Please note that there's no element of becoming one with God in this biblically derived definition. Also notice there's no promise of sinless perfection in this, which means that even when someone is reached maturity, they're still going to be struggling with sin. Unfortunately, until the rapture comes or the resurrection, we are all going to be struggling with sin. The mature believer still sins. He doesn't remain in his sin for an extended period of time. He's quick to confess his sin and be restored to fellowship. His life is characterized for the most part as being filled with the spirit, not controlled with the flesh, but he still sins. Now, The question is, how does one become mature? Well, let's go back to that great theologian, Lewis Carroll. The Hatter was the first to break the silence. What month is it, he said, turning to Alice. He had taken his watch out of his pocket and was looking at it uneasily, shaking it every now and then and holding it to his ear. Alice considered a little and said, the fourth. Two days wrong, sighed the Hatter. I told you butter wouldn't suit the works, he added, looking angrily at the March Hare. It was the best butter, the March Hare replied meekly. Yes, but some crumbs must have gotten in as well, the Hatter grumbled. You shouldn't have put it in with the bread knife. The March Hare took the watch and looked at it gloomily. Then he dipped it into his cup of tea, looked at it again, but could think of nothing better to say than his first remark. It was the best butter, you know. I'm just looking around and someone has absconded with my Bible. Oh, it's on my chair. Thief! Oh, no, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you, brother. All right. Should have. I knew when I stepped up here I was forgetting something. And Yeah, among my mind and other things. Okay. So let's see what it is that we need to do to become spiritually mature. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, as you hope you have your Bibles with you and that you're turning along with me here. Romans chapter 7, let's look at verses 5 through 13. 
There are some people that would argue that Paul is not saved in this chapter, but I just don't see it. Um, Paul condemns the world in chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. He begins talking about the Jew in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, and then he condemns the whole world through 320. Every mouth is stopped. He talks about the justification or the righteousness that comes from God in chapter 3, verses 21 to, I believe it's 26. Then in chapter 4, he shows how faith um, or how justification is not by the law, it's by faith. He uses David and Abram as an example. He shows how it's not by circumcision because Abram was circumcised after it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not by the law that came 430 years later. Then in chapter 5, he shows the benefits of being justified. Then there's a hinge in the book and he shows how um, how you're either associated with Adam or with Christ. Chapter 6 asks the question, should we continue in sin? Should we continue in a lifestyle of sin so that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid, how could we who have, are dead to sin continue to live in it? And then chapter 6, verse 15, well, what about just committing one sin? And he says, don't you know that sin is inherently enslaving? You become a slave to the one that you obey. It's like Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one, Okay. So now in chapter 7, he talks about sin for the believer. Verse 5. For when we were controlled by the flesh, the flesh aroused by the law, the sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was actually intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now, every genuine believer recognizes that we are saved by grace apart from works so that no one can boast. It says so in Ephesians 2. What is less understood is that we can't be saved by a list of do's and don'ts. We don't grow in our righteousness that way either. For some strange reason, we have the tendency to think that while our salvation must be a work of God, our practical day-to-day righteousness is up to us. So we struggle, we make resolutions, we promise to do better, we grit our teeth and we sweat and we strain and it's all to no avail. And you know what I'm talking about. Now, why is that? Well, Paul answers this question by explaining 
the true nature of the law. The terrible reality of trying to live by the law works, whether it's the law of Moses or any other system rules, is that it is ultimately self-defeating. For while our set of rules demand a certain type of behavior, it doesn't produce the power necessary to produce that behavior. The law says behave in this way, but does not give us the power to behave in this way. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. The law incites in us the very things that it forbids. You see, the law incites sin. I don't know if you can see that sign. The guy is standing under a sign that says no standing any time. Instead, rule books stir up the sinful rebellion in our hearts and they produce the very behavior that they prohibit. Our sinful passions are aroused by the law. Verse 5, for when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. Sin takes advantage of the opportunity that the law produces to increase and express our natural wickedness. And you know this to be true, don't you? What's the quickest way to do, get somebody to do something? Tell them they can't, right? Because immediately that desire for the forbidden springs to life. I'm convinced that if you posted a sign, no tar consumption here, people would start to eat tar. <laughs> I used this illustration in a church once and an older woman came up to me and stated that she used to eat tar. And I went, okay, I'm listening. And she said that when she was young and out on the farm, they would come and do road work. And when it was being done with tar, she'd go to the edge. And after the tar had cooled, she'd take some of the piece off that had bubbled up and pull it out and put it in her mouth and chew it like gum. And when she told me that, the only thing I could think of to say at the time is, well, I'm glad you kicked the habit. Now, Paul makes an, instant, uh, an interesting observation about life and death. He states that he was alive until the law came alive, and then he died. When the law came alive, sin came alive with it. Look at verse 9 and 10. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. But when we serve in the power of the Spirit, the law dies and sin dies with it. Look at verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, that's the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what does this say about the law? Is there something wrong with it? Absolutely not. The law is holy and righteous and good because it was given by a God who is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. Just as butter is good in its place, it isn't suitable for lubricating watches. That was the reason we read that from the Mad Tea Party. doesn't matter if it's the best but, best butter. Butter wasn't made for watches. In the same way, the law is holy and righteous and good, but it's not intended to produce in us righteousness. In fact, it was designed to do just the, exactly the opposite in one respect at least. It is through the commandment that sin becomes 
utterly sinful. Well, if the law isn't needed to bring about a righteous life, what is? Well, as you might expect, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at verses uh, 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I'm fleshy, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. Now let's make sure we understand his argument. He's not auditioning for an episode of Star Trek here. You know, remember Star Trek, you know, every everybody that ever did anything wrong was because they were inhabited by an evil alien, right? Okay, there was no personal responsibility at all. Nobody did things just because they were sinful. There was always some extra force that came upon him. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I, I hate what I do. And if it was just up to me, if it was just a matter of making up my mind, if all I had to do was click my heels together three times and say there's no place like home, I'd stop sinning. But there is something internal to me and yet external to me that goads me that prompts me that is relentless like a monkey on my back crawling biting my ear poking my eyes that will not let me go that constantly prods me to sin verse 18 i know that nothing good lives within me that is in my flesh For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And if you've ever tried to live righteously in Jesus Christ, you know exactly what Paul is talking about. Verse 20, now if I do what I no longer want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it's sin living within me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice that it's not a matter of trying harder. Notice that there is a warfare in the inner being. It's like the trench warfare of World War II, or of World War I, rather. They would take some trenches and lose some trenches and take some trenches and lose some trenches and they would fight at the end of the war over a six-month period of time and it took them that long to gain just a very few miles. In fact, the battle lines in World War I never changed more than 22 miles in either direction. There is a constant warfare. And he says, because of this warfare, he has been taken as a prisoner of war. I see another law at work within my members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner 
of the law of sin at work within my members. In other words, he's been, he's been captured in this warfare. He's been taken and thrown into the cell and the, and the, uh, the, the jail cell's door has clanged shut behind him. He is locked in completely captive to sin. That's his testimony. That's why he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who's able to deliver me from this body of death? Fortunately, we don't end there. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, notice he is no longer condemned as a prisoner. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, if uh, you come to Christ and you trust him and his finished work on the cross, then there's no more condemnation. And what they mean by that is you will no longer suffer the penalty of sin out into eternity. Now, that is a true statement. When you come to Christ, the issue of sin is forever and completely settled. You no longer face your sin again. It was dealt with completely at the cross. It was judged there. The written uh, ordinances that were against us were blotted out. We never face our sin again. That's a true statement, but that's not what's being said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The word for condemnation in Romans 8 verse 1 is penal condemnation. The idea is that you're standing before the judge. You've been found guilty. He brings down the gavel and he, and he condemns you to 20 years at hard labor. You have now been condemned by the law. You have been sentenced. That's what it means. Penal condemnation. Now what he's saying then is there is now no penal condemnation remember how at the end of chapter 7 you were thrown into the prison house of sin and the doors were shut behind you that penal condemnation is no longer available that's no longer true for those who are in christ jesus in fact god's righteousness is fully met in us in fact it's an interesting statement here when we're let out of the jail Sin is put in. Notice verse 3. And so he condemned sin. Same, same word. Penal condemnation. So he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In other words, when you live according to the flesh and not according to the... When you live according to the not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, you are led out of jail and sin is put in jail. That's what he's saying. And what you tried to accomplish by living according to the law, which was self-defeating, actually comes about because of God the Holy Spirit. In other words, the righteous requirements of the law, note, are fully 
met in us when who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit that's when let's think of it this way my wife is an excellent cook I can provide more than ample physical testimony in any court of law to the fact that she is a good cook and back up my claim. Now, let's suppose my wife cooks a turkey for Thanksgiving, uh, and it's a small turkey, which really does take some imagining because normally my wife's Thanksgiving dinners are enough to feed an aircraft carrier, but I digress. So the smell of the turkey permeates the house, Oh, it smells good. Can you smell it? Yeah, there you go. And she finally pronounces it done. But she's not just a good cook. She's a good homemaker. She's not willing to just bring out the broiler pan and plop it on the table. No, she brings out the good china and she brings out the good platter. And she's going to make a presentation on the table. So she takes the large fork that we use for our outdoor grill and she sticks the turkey with it, and using both hands, she lifts the turkey up, but the meat tears away, and plop, it goes back down into the roast, uh, the broiler pan. Undaunted, she tries it again, but with the same result. And then she tries it again with the same result. By this time, there's turkey drippings all over the stove on her apron, even a few drops on the floor for which our dogs are grateful. But my wife is a valiant woman, never one to give up in the face of adversity. With the back of her wrist, wrist, she pushes away the wisp of hair that has fallen down from her immaculate dew. And she tries again, piercing the pesky poultry closer to the bone. But the now shredded turkey stubbornly refuses to leave the broiler pan. So she puts aside the fork and from the same set that we use to grill takes the big spatula. And she slides the spatula underneath the turkey, lifts it out of the broiler pan and puts it on the plate. Now, the question must immediately be asked, Was there anything wrong with the fork? No, it's a perfectly good fork. The problem was the fork was unsuited for the job that she was using it for. If the turkey had been uncooked, it might have worked. But the cooking made the flesh tender, which is just another way of saying that the flesh was weak. So we could summarize the story this way. What the fork could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, the spatula did. (laughs) Now watch, the standard did not change. The standard was to get the turkey out of the broiler pan and onto the plate. But you couldn't accomplish it with the fork. You had to have the right tool for the job. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that we're weak in the flesh. So what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Okay? 
If you are trying to live according to the law works in order to bring about righteousness in your life, beloved, I lovingly tell you, you are doomed to fail. That doesn't mean that if you are trying to live a righteous life, you are doomed to fail. You just have to have the right tool for the right job. Well, so what is it that the law could not do? The law was unable to produce the righteous life that God demands. So God did what the law could not do. First, by taking the law out of the way by giving his son as a sin offering. And second, by providing his spirit so that we could walk in him and not in the flesh. And notice the goal, the righteousness of the law requires, it never changed. The turkey had to get from the broiler plan onto the plate. The, the goal didn't change. God's goal for our lives doesn't change. But the means of accomplishing that goal has. We become practically righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit, or as it says in verse 4, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, we've had to derive definitions uh, before. Let's find out the exact meaning of being filled with the Spirit. Let's turn to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, actually, the tense of the verb in the original language shows a continuous action, so we might say it this way, continually be filled with the Spirit. And notice this is a command. Therefore, to not be filled is disobedience, which is otherwise known as sin. Now, we're not told a formal definition of being filled with the Spirit here, but we are given a hint. Because there are three times in the New Testament where being filled with the Spirit is contrasted with being drunk. The first is in Luke 1.15, where we read, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Talking about John the Southern Baptist. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just seeing if you're paying attention. Second, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 and 13. And then finally here, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So three times the filling of the Spirit is contrasted with being drunk with wine. In Acts chapter 2... The disciples were given the miraculous ability to speak known languages that they have not previously learned. And we have a list of those languages in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The theme of the preaching was Christ, verses 22 to 36. And their boldness in professing him was mistaken as being drunk. So evidently there is a 
pattern of behavior that is similar to drunkenness when someone is filled with the Spirit, even though there is no formal definition given for being filled with the Spirit. Now, the pattern of behavior doesn't lead to the same result. It's the same pattern of behavior, but not the same result, being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Paul tells us why we're not to get drunk. It leads to debauchery. In English, this word usually is defined as excessive behavior in sensual pleasures, but in the original language, it provides a wealth of information concerning what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The word translated debauchery refers to behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. Senseless deeds, reckless deeds, recklessness. That's why this word is translated in some languages as what one does without being able to think about it or what one does when the mind is absent. That gives us a clue, doesn't it? It's the idea of control. It's the idea of letting go and doing what you do regardless of the consequences, regardless of the thoughts beforehand of what will happen. The end result is that we end up doing things when we're drunk we wouldn't dream of doing when we're sober. We also say things we normally wouldn't say. This is the meaning of the old Latin phrase in vino veritas, in wine there is truth. Not because there's truthfulness in wine, but you get someone with too much wine and they will tell you the truth. People have fewer inhibitions when they drink, so they tell you what they really think. Oops, excuse me, I didn't mean to do that. So if we were to define the filling of the Spirit then based upon this, we would, I think we would say this. The filling of the Spirit is the spiritual state where the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in and through us all He desires. The filling of the Spirit is the spiritual state where the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in and through us all He desires. In other words, there is no thought about the consequences. There's no thought about the actions where instead of being controlled by wine, now we're being controlled by the Spirit and we have this exuberance to do things that we wouldn't normally do because it is the Holy Spirit acting in and through us to accomplish what he desires. Now, we need to recognize a couple things. First, there is no such thing as being partially filled by the Spirit. While it may be true that there are different levels of drunkenness, the believer is either filled with the Spirit or he is not. The Spirit is either accomplishing what he desires in our lives or he is not. We can consider it this way. The filling of the Spirit is like an on-off switch. Moving toward maturity is more like a dimmer switch. There's different levels of maturity, but there's only two possible states regarding the filling of the Spirit, on or off. That's it. There's no third state. You're either filled or you're not. There's nothing in between. But, like a dimmer switch, there's many levels of maturity as we grow in Christ and move toward the Sabbath rest that's talked about in Hebrews. So, there's no such thing as being partially filled with the Spirit. The issue isn't one of our getting more of the Holy Spirit, but of the Holy Spirit getting more of us. The term filling 
while I'm not charging the Holy Spirit with error, does not help us much in English because it conjures a mistaken mental image. We are thinking of a, of a, a, a water glass partially filled with water and we add more water to the glass. But that's not the case at all. That's a bad picture. Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation. In Ephesians 1, we read that he is the deposit or the earnest money guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We never have any more of the Spirit than we have at the moment of salvation. What is at issue is not how much of the Spirit that we have, but how much control of us He has. Even the newest believer can be and is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. While the time we spend being filled with the Spirit moves us toward maturity, maturity is not a prerequisite to being filled. To state it more plainly, you can be, you can be filled with the Spirit right now regardless of your spiritual state as long as you've trusted Christ as your Savior. When we're filled with the Spirit, He's able to display in us the life and character of Christ. Being filled with the Spirit is the only way that a believer can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because you see, if to live is anything but Christ, then to die, beloved, is loss. No matter what it is, if to live is something other than Christ, then to die is lost because you leave it here. But when you are filled with the Spirit and you can say, for me to live is Christ, then and only then, when you're faced with a doctor's report, can you say, to die is gain. The character produced in us will be that of Christ. The cause of that godly character, however, is the unhindered work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Or in Philippians 3, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now watch. All of us then who are mature should take the same view of things. Well, let's look at the qualifications for being filled with the Spirit. We know what being filled with the Spirit is. It's when God, the Holy Spirit, is accomplishing in and through us everything that He desires. But what are the qualifications for being filled with the Spirit? Well, we're already in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at verses 29 
Actually, I have... Oh, it's because I'm in chapter 5. That's why I'm not reading what I should be reading. Chapter 4. When you get in the right chapter, Bruce, it really, really helps. Chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, so that they may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave each of you. Now, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? In the context that we just read, grieving the Spirit is equated with all manner of different sins. There are things that we do, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice, as, all as, as well as the things that we refuse to do, being kind, compassionate, forgiving each other, and so forth. So we can state the following definition. Grief is the emotion that God the Holy Spirit feels when the believer sins. The believer cannot be filled with the Spirit as long as the Holy Spirit is grieved. Now, even though there are a lot of sins to be avoided in the passage above, we can't limit grieving the Spirit to any of these or to any other list. Any and all sin grieves God the Holy Spirit. And it stops him from accomplishing in and through us what he wants because now, instead of working through us, he must work on us to bring us to repentance. Instead of using us as the tool by which he influences others, now he is the tool by which he influences us. So therefore, you cannot grieve the Holy Spirit of God and be filled with the Spirit of God at the same time. God desires that sin be prevented, but when someone does sin, God has provided a remedy. There's two remedies for sin, two words that deal with sin in the Bible. The first word is the word believe. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't had the issue of sin taken care of in your life, God commands you to come to the cross and to believe. That's the operative word. But once someone has the issue of sin taken care of, once they are a Christian, that means that they are rightly related to Christ. Now the operative word for sin is the word confess. We see this in 1 John. Let's turn there. 1 John. Listening for pages turning. Okay, thank you. First John chapter three, excuse me, first John chapter one, verse three, pardon me. First John chapter one, verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of, of Jesus, his son, keeps on purifying us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this passage mentions three false claims that a believer can make about sin. First, if we walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God, we're lying. Second, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves. Third, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. And I've seen all three of these in active Christian circles. Oh, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend, but God and I are cool. No. If we walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God, we're lying. You know, I used to sin, but now since I've got that second blessing, I don't sin anymore. If we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. By the way, I always want to speak to the spouse of the person that's claiming to be without sin. I just, I just want to check just to see. You know, I didn't need saving because, you know, I haven't really sinned in my life. I've made some mistakes, but I've never really sinned. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So it's clear, therefore, that sin is a problem even for a believer. It's still a problem. And anyone who tries to make a claim of sinless perfection is making God out to be a liar. Yet if we walk in the light, which is another way of stating being filled with the Spirit, the blood of Christ keeps on purifying us, listen, from all sin. And again, the original language shows a continuous action. When we sin, we do not lose our salvation because we have someone who is a lawyer, who is a defense advocate, who speaks to God the Father on our defense. So this passage is not talking about the possibility of a loss of salvation. The main issue is fellowship. And see, in fact, we've seen the word fellowship used three times in the text. The way to deal with sin and to get back into fellowship is found in verse 9. It is to confess our sin. The word confess there is an interesting word. It comes from two Greek words, homo meaning the same and logion meaning to speak. It means to say the same thing. In other words, when we confess our sin, we're saying the same thing about our sin that God is saying about it. Number one, it's sin. Number two, it's my fault. I did it. Number three, the blood of Christ has dealt with that sin. That's confession. And I really believe that confession, we don't want to be like Martin Luther who spent you know, 12, 13, 14 hours in the confessional dredging up every sin that he could think of. The confessor finally got mad at him and threw him out and said, go sin some real sins and then come back. 
We don't want to be morbid about it like that, but I'm convinced that when we've sinned and we need to deal with it, God the Holy Spirit will bring it to mind and we need to deal with it then with confession. Now, I think it's great to know that sinless perfection is not demanded of the believer. God doesn't want us to sin, but he recognizes who we are and he recognizes what we're capable of. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, that God is easy to please, but impossible to satisfy. When I see my little grandson Elijah, six months old now, on the floor, he's rolling over now all by himself and crawling a little bit. And one of these days he's going to stand up and take his first few tentative steps and then fall on his diaper behind. Now, am I going to run over and swat him because he didn't do a good job? What's wrong with you? You fell down. No, what's going to happen? Why, my children are going to come and show Papa and Mana that just, you know, how extraordinary their above average grandchild is. And, and, you know, and on and on. And there's going to be pictures sent to the other relatives and so forth and so on. Now, am I satisfied with those first few failing steps? No. But am I pleased? Yes. God is easy to please, beloved, but he is impossible to satisfy. He recognizes what we are. As it says in Psalm 103, he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are but dust. He has a very realistic picture of our spiritual life. God, who is the ultimate of truth, has no delusions about our goodness. That's why he has provided a means for us to stay in fellowship with him, him, even though we are so prone to sin. And I, uh, the word confess means to say the same thing. It means to concede something that's factual or true. And that's all that's required. There's no penance to complete. There's no special ritual to perform. He only asks us to tell the truth about our sin. God desires that we move from our falsehoods, that it's okay this time, that it doesn't really matter, that it's not that big a deal and so forth, and be honest with him and with ourselves about who we are and what it is that we have done or failed to do, as the case may be. And once we are again telling the truth, God promises to be faithful and just and forgive our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Notice that he doesn't promise to be merciful because there's no need for mercy. The mercy was shown back at the cross. He doesn't promise to be lenient because God is never lenient with sin. God always punishes sin. Always. But the punishment of the believer was placed upon cross, upon the cross. It was punished completely there, so the punishment of my sin does not have to fall upon me. And so God says, because of my son's work on the cross, I'm going to be just to my promises. I'm going to be faithful to what I've declared And the sin issue isn't going to get between us once we start telling the truth. Well, let's move on to the second qualification, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I just realized why I'm not hearing so many pages turn. 
That's because so many of you are using your laptops and so forth and, and just hearing little short clicks here. With Logos in the room, it's uncool to use a paper Bible. Oh, like you're going to try and deny it. Okay. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. Verse 16, be joyful always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You ever want to know what God's will for your life is? Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. I believe the King James says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold on to the good, avoid all kinds of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now, notice here the idea is do not quench the spirit. The idea is that you have a campfire and you're breaking camp for the day and you bring a bucket of water, being a responsible camper, and you pour the water on the fire so that the fire is completely put out. You have quenched the fire. Paul says, don't quench the spirit's fire. If grieving the spirit is where we sin and we grieve the spirit because we've said no to God and we have actively done something or failed to do something that he's said, quenching the spirit is when we are refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to have control. Remember, being filled with the spirit is where God is accomplishing in and through us everything that he desires. So quenching the spirit is when he is prompting you to do something and through fear, you say no. I know I should talk to this person, but I can't. I know I should just be quiet right now, but I can't. I know I should, but I can't. That's quenching the spirit. It's saying no to the Spirit's prompting, which assumes, of course, that the Holy Spirit communicates with the believer. And I firmly believe that. I am absolutely convinced that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to the individual believer. Now, I don't believe it's through words. I don't think it's any kind of mysticism like we talked about in our first session, non-cognitive images and so forth. But think about the last time you sinned. Most of us don't have to think that long. And think about the convicting work of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life. You knew that you had sinned, but it was more than a cognitive knowledge. It wasn't just that you brought up a certain Bible verse that told you that you shouldn't sin. No, you knew that you had sinned. How did you know? It was a knowledge it wasn't a voice, it wasn't words, but it was a knowledge. And it was more than a knowledge, it was a, it was a pressure. That's the voice of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit communicates to the believer, I am convinced of at least two things. Number one, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
But second, I am convinced that we can be led by the Spirit so that we can know in practical terms good from evil at any particular moment, what God the Holy Spirit would have us do and what he would have us refrain from doing. That's why it says in Hebrews 5 that the mature are those who through constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I had somebody the other day when we go to a a seminar that was put on by Willow Creek Community Church and I was trying to be nice. I was. You don't need to snicker. (sighs) I probably would if I was in your case, but that's not polite. So I was trying to be nice and I said, you know, I don't know. I'm not crazy about Willow Creek Community Church. And he said, well, you know, all truth is God's truth. And then he started blathering on about something else. I stopped being polite just then, didn't I? Doggone it. And I got stuck on the phrase, all truth is God's truth. In one respect, of course, he's right. If it's true, it's of God. And if it's not true, it's not of God. But that's not what he meant. What he meant is that truth is truth wherever you find it. But the underlying supposition is that we can know truth apart from the ministering work of God, the Holy Spirit, and his holy word. If I go to this seminar, which is on leadership, and um, that's a subject, hey, snicker if you want, that's a subject the Bible just doesn't talk about, okay? Talks a great deal about being a servant, about being a slave, just doesn't talk about being a leader, okay? But I digress. That's extra. I'm not even going to take up an offering for that, okay? That's... (laughs) The assumption is that we can go to something where we have secular banking authorities and so forth and so on and media moguls and all of this telling us how to run our churches and that we'll be able to know truth from error on our own. I reject that. In order to know good from evil at any given moment, you have to rely on the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. We have absolutely no mechanism of determining good from evil on our own which is why we can't say no to the Spirit when he's saying do this because it's always good what he calls us to do. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Finally, let's go to Ephesians 2.10. This is one of those verses that nobody knows. Everybody knows Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Who, without looking, can go on to verse 10? Some of you. Oh, this is my impressed look, okay? I have asked that question I don't know how many times, and I've gotten, you know, you know, one guy. Right? Okay, let's look at it. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, listen, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, what is it that God wants us to do? He wants us to do good works, but watch, he has prepared in advance good works for us to do so that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, none of us will be able to say, well, you know, Lord, I wanted to do good works, but I never had the opportunity. No, God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. That's why I can say with all confidence that a self-directed life is a misdirected life. God has planned good works for us to do. 
Therefore, if we're to be filled with the Spirit, we have to say yes to God's direction, whether it makes sense to us or not. We must pray like Jesus when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Now, at this point, we have to be careful not to water down what's being commanded. There's always a tendency, isn't there, to take the all-or-nothing statements of Scripture and dilute them with the waters of practicality? So guard against this natural tendency. Let's just look at one example of this, just one. First, the, uh, first John, first John, chapter three. First John, chapter three, verse sixteen. First John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What does that mean? That we should lay down our lives for our brothers. Which means that if it comes time for their life or our life, it should be our life. That we should be able, that we should be willing to give our life if called upon for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. That is an all or nothing statement. It's perfectly clear, but it's just not practical. There's others if you're taking notes, right? First Peter 2, 21 to 23. First Peter 2, 21 to 23. Acts seven fifty one to sixty. Read those out loud and take them seriously, and don't water them down. Now let's go to Romans chapter twelve, as we continue looking about how to grow in Christ. Romans chapter twelve verses one and two, very familiar passage for most of us, I think. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Watch, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We've been told that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. How are we to know how to do them? Well, here's how. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, but the command to offer our bodies isn't limited to our physical bodies, although it's included in the thought. Instead, this command is limited is extending to the whole person. The bodies here is the idea of the whole person as it interacts with the world. Our material body is the instrument that our immaterial spirit uses to interact with this world. So every action that you perform is through the use of your bodies. So we're forced to act like questions like, where do your feet take you? What do you allow your eyes to see? What does your tongue say? You see, our inward character is expressed through the use of our bodies. 
And we should also notice that there are three qualities that describe the sacrifice of our bodies. In contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices who died when when they were offered, we are called to be living sacrifices. This may indeed take us to the point of death, but then again it may not. The very point is that the very moment of our existence, every moment of our existence, is is to be spent yielded to God so that we are the active agent of his will. Regardless of where it takes us, we're to be living sacrifices. And we are to be holy. This means to be set apart. Anybody know the opposite of the word holy? Don't say unholy. That's cheating. What's the opposite of the word holy? Very good, Tommy. Common or profane. Exactly right. Those things that are used for everyday use. This space is holy. Because as far as I know, you don't allow the Boy Scouts in here. You don't allow the Rotary Club. You don't allow all that stuff. This space is set apart for the use of God's people and their worship of him. It's not common. It's set apart. We are to be holy. We are to be set apart from all that is common or profane. We are to be available for God's exclusive use when we're filled with the Spirit. And we're to be pleasing to God. Just as in the Old Testament, the, off- the offerings had to be acceptable. You had to offer an animal that was without spot and without blemish and without defect. So we are to be without spot and without blemish in that our sins are confessed. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, as it says in 1 John 1, 9. And the commendation of living actively for Christ while being set apart from what is sinful results in a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. We're told that we're not to be pushed into the mold. That's what it means to be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know, um, when I was a kid, the thing was Play-Doh. You'd take the Play-Doh and you'd stick it in the thing and you'd put like a star or a square or something. And then you'd pull down the handle and the Play-Doh would be squished through the mold and then you'd just cut it off and they'd all look the same. And that's what the world is trying to do. It's trying to take its outward pressure and push you into the mold. And if you don't think that's true, try driving the speed limit when you go home. The world's trying to push you into its mold. Instead, don't be pushed into its mold, but rather be transformed. The Greek word there is metamorphosis. It has the idea of a caterpillar going into a cocoon and an internal change taking place that eventually shows itself with an outwards change. The world tries to affect us outside in. God says, no, be transformed from the inside out. And when that happens, then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We have a tendency to think, you know, I'd give myself to God's will, but frankly, I don't want to be miserable. Right? Come on. We've all felt that way at one time or another because we just know that God's, you know, we've read these stories about the missionaries who have nothing to eat, you know, and live, you know, on a mountain for four years without talking to anybody, you know. (laughs) And we're going, I don't want to do that. Frankly, I don't want to either. But God's will is always good. It's always pleasing. It's always perfect. Why? Because God himself is always good. He is always pleasing. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And it's always perfect because he himself is perfect.
We're to be living sacrifices. We're to be holding sacrifices. We're to be pleasing to God. God reveals his will only to those who are willing to do it. I've had people tell me, you know, I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do, but I'm not going to be a missionary to China. Well, then guess what? God wants you to be a missionary to China. Until you finally submit and say, okay, God, I'm willing to do whatever. And then God saying, you know, that wasn't my plan all along. I just wanted to bring you to the point of submission. God reveals his will only to those who are willing to do it. God's will is always in accordance with the scripture. Never beyond it. I really believe it's God's will that I marry this unbeliever. No, it's not. You don't even have to pray about that. I mean, I, I'm not one to discourage prayer, but you don't have to pray about it. God's already made his will known, right? God doesn't lead his children by a set of rules. Many of us in here are married. What would happen if you went home and said, Oh, Jiminy, it's about 4.30. Honey, come here. It's time for me to kiss you. And then you give her a smooch. Okay, got that done. And then go on, right? That's not exactly a thriving relationship. It's living by a set of rules. It makes sure that you do those things that you probably should be doing every day, but that's not the way your spouse wants you to live, and that's not the way God wants you to interact with him. He doesn't want to live by a set of rules. He doesn't lead us by a set of rules. It's a relationship. God's Spirit interprets providence by giving us the mind of Christ. A miracle is when God suspends the laws of nature in order to bring about his will. Miracles are, by their definition, rare, In fact, they're divided basically into three sections in the Bible. There's Moses and Joshua, there's Elijah and Elisha, and there's Jesus and the apostles. And that's pretty much it. Providence is when God accomplishes his will through ordinary means without the suspension of natural law. So that you can see that it just so happened. And it just so happened. And it just so happened in all the time While other people see coincidence, you see the hand of God. God's Spirit interprets providence for us. God's leading is a knowledge that God provides. It's a knowledge of what is right or wrong. Now look, you don't need to... God only reveals His will when you need to to do it. In other words, God never gives us more information about the future than we need to be obedient in the present. God will not tell you His will until you need to act on it in some way or another. But God will always tell you everything you need to know to be obedient right now. Now, knowing God's will can be difficult to explain or describe, but we can describe the times when we've been led by the Spirit of te- in the past. Again, think of the last time you were tempted, the struggle that went on inside you. You knew the right thing to do. How did you know? How could you explain to someone the knowledge that the Spirit gave you of right and wrong? What words do it justice? I confess that I can find none. But there is a knowledge there nevertheless. In the same way, God, the Holy Spirit, directs us moment by moment so that we can know what actions to take. The the correct decisions that we need to be made can be made with the same sure knowledge, not a feeling, not a voice, but a knowledge that we possess because we have the mind of Christ. It's worth remembering that God has given other believers in the church 
In order to build up the body, he's given the pastor teacher for the equipping of the saints. We have the scriptures to guide us. There's the hand of God in providence. In short, there's a multitude of ways that God can make his will known to us. But ultimately, it is the, the interpreting work of God, the Holy Spirit, that makes sense of all these external events and guides us in the way that we should go so that we accomplish the good works that he's set before us. Well, one more. Galatians I, I should hate to say one more. I don't know where I'm going here. Galatians 5:16. Galatians 5:16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The first two conditions for being filled with the Spirit are both negative commands. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. They're the things that you must not do. The third qualification is, in contrast, a positive command. There is something you must do. In order to be filled with the Spirit, you must walk in the Spirit. There's several passages that speak to this aspect of spirituality, but the most direct one is here. It's vital to note that the command is not to walk in the Spirit, as the King James has it, but walk by the Spirit, as rendered in the NIV or the NASB. If we were to walk in the Spirit, the implication would be that we're the ones doing the walking. Instead, we're to walk by the Spirit or by means of the Spirit or to maintain the walk that the Spirit produces. Just as the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit the Spirit produces, so walking by the Spirit is walking by the power that the Spirit produces. And since this statement is a command, there is some human activity involved, but it's not the activity that produces the walk. Our involvement is a moment-by-moment conscious reliance upon the power of of the Holy Spirit. It is this dependency upon the Spirit that is being commanded. The same idea is found two verses later. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being led implies a dependency upon the one doing the leading. So we may define walking in the Spirit as follows. Walking in the Spirit is an unbroken reliance upon God, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to accomplish what He desires in and through us. You may have noticed that this... this, this um, Definition is quite similar to being filled with the Spirit, where He is accomplishing in and through us all He desires. The difference between these two concepts lies in which side of the divine equation you're looking at. The filling of the Spirit is God working in us. The walking in the Spirit or by the Spirit is our dependence upon Him. These are obviously related idea, but one stresses human responsibility while the other emphasizes the results. And may I say that there are three reasons to walk by the Spirit. First of all, there is a supernatural standard. There's a standard none of us can meet unless we're walking by the Spirit. Second, we have a supernatural enemy who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And third, we have a substandard nature that doesn't allow us to live up what God says. If you want to live the righteous life that God requires, then you need to maintain a conscious reliance upon God, the Holy Spirit, as you walk in the Spirit. You cannot grieve the Spirit. You cannot quench the Spirit. But when you do, you confess. You tell the truth. You come back into the truth immediately. 
To sum up, being a Christian is being rightly related to Christ. Being spirit is being being spiritual is being rightly related to the Spirit. And at this point, I'll entertain any questions that you may have. Tommy, we'll take one. We have one minute, one question. You told me to get done at 4.30. No, we're done at 4.30. I said finish at 4.15 for Q&A. Did he say that? Well, cut off my legs and call me Stumpy. All right. That's a genitive case. Mm -hmm. Be filled by dative. Yes, I'm sorry. That's what I was going to say. It wasn't a genitive case. You know, and it looks like, sounds like it's a genitive of content, but it's a, and so it's the same as walk by the Spirit, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Instrumental of means, I guess, or something like that. But also the word uh, The two examples you gave related to drunk are different forms of the word plerao. Yes, I'm aware of that. Well, in my studies... Pimplerao um, functions differently than just regular plerao, mm-hmm. and they're all related. You to don't perf- take it as an intensive. To perf- it's not the issue. They're all related to prophetic utterances. Mm-hmm. In other words, he was filled by the Spirit and spoke, saying, you know, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if, whereas plerao is a very unique use compared to other uses of that form, you know, in in, uh, the Greek language. So I don't know if that would be a factor in impacting the use of those other two, which fit more into prophetic utterance type. Well, what is happening with the filling of the Spirit there is, I think, inconsequential. Because the fact is they were filled with the Spirit, and there was a contrast with drunkenness. Um, we can say that, you know, well, their filling with the Spirit meant that it uh, involved prophetic utterances and that, and I won't quibble with that. I, I, I'd like to do a little more research on that question. That's kind of a new, new issue to me. But the fact is that being filled with the Spirit was, um, in both cases, was being compared with drunkenness. You know, he won't drink wine because he's going to be filled with the Spirit. They're prophesying they're too much in wine, and now don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. So I kind of tie all those three together because they have the same theme involved there, and I think they help define what being filled with the Spirit is because we need help because it's not defined for us in Scripture. Okay? All right. I I want to clarify what Tommy's talking about. On those passages, for example, Luke 2 with Mary, that's been play me, not play ra'o. I know, but it's plerao in Ephesians 5.18. Pimplame is is only used in relation to prophetic utterance. And even though the root P-L-Ada, P-Lambda-Ada, is similar, trying to argue that pimplame and plerao are are somewhat similar is trying to argue that patho 
to convince is related to, it defines the meaning of pistis because they both come from some, you know, etymological root. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you were saying? So this is a different type of filling that was used in relation to inspiration or prophecy. It's... Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad your memory works. All right, th- let's give a round of applause to Bruce. For Thank you. Let me give a plug here. There's still copies of these in the back. I'm going to be leaving after this, section, uh, after this session. I won't be here tomorrow for reasons that have already been discussed. So if you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, uh, now is the time. Now, now, now. Run, do not walk to the table and pick one up, okay? All right, thank you. All right, thank you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had today. Thank you for uh, Bruce's ministry, for his teaching, for the challenges that he has presented terms of your word. Help us to understand these things may, whatever thoughts or disagreements or confusion we may have, drive us to be better, more detailed students of your word. We pray for him. We pray for his health. We pray for his wife. We put him in your hands and trust that you will, uh, we know you will do the best, and we pray that his response and his wife's response will glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.